Um, my name is Nate Johnson. I'm one of the, the church planting interns here at CCB this summer. And I've been given the opportunity to bring God's word before you all this morning. We'll be continuing in our series in Revelation. Uh, so Revelation chapter 2, 18 through 29. This will be the next of Christ's letters to the churches in Asia Minor. Um, so we have the text printed in your bulletin. Um, so if you would please read with me. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. And the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit say to the churches. Let us pray. Father, thank you for bringing us all here this morning to hear your word hear it read and proclaimed and sung, for we know its benefits, Lord, that by it you transform us, you make us more like your beloved, only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. By it you free us from sin, you breathe into us new life. And so, Lord, let us all trust ourselves to you, and let what it is that you wish of us to hear to be remembered, to be held in our hearts and all of the dross that is produced by me, that it be cast aside. In your name I pray, Lord. Amen. As I look out across America, um, specifically the American conservative evangelical church, and I think of all the many, many hours spent in reading books and different theological discussions and disagreements about what does a passage mean? Um, sometimes I really wish I had a time machine, or maybe if your kids are familiar with it, a magic treehouse out in the woods I could climb up to and just put my finger on the text and say, Lord, take me back to when the dear Apostle Paul was writing Romans 9 and just be like, hey, Paul, what 
in the world are you talking about? We're really having a problem, like we've been debating about this forever. Can you solve it for us? And then pop back in and just give everybody the answer and say, we can move on to more important things now. Um, and then from there, the next thing would be sending me back over how do we apply it now that we know what it means. Um, and so I guess I'd have a lot of trips, you know. And then I think of all the other problems we have in the 21st century American conservative evangelical church. And, you know, like a big one that has filled up TGC or any other Christian blog site is like, how does the church live in a country that is perpetually becoming more post-Christian, more pluralistic? And all of us have a different answer to that as well. And so I wish I could jump in the time machine, the magic tree house, and go back to the early church, because we know the early church got everything right. <laughs> and just pick their brain about, hey, how do we solve this problem our church is having in the 21st century? Um, I'd probably have to spend 45 minutes explaining what a cell phone is or something like that, but they would have the answer. And then I'd pop up, and we could pass it on, and we could move on to the next thing. In Christ, in his graciousness to all of us, he hasn't given us a time machine, unfortunately, but he has given us a time capsule of what the early church was like um, to graciously dissuade us from that opinion that just because it's earlier that they had everything together. When we look at the church of Thyatira, um, if you're a note taker, our first point is the church was a mess. I mean, if it's, he goes through and Christ in his normal manner follows the pattern of saying who he is, saying what's good about the church, digging into what's really, really wrong, and then making a promise to them. And the problem in Thyatira is probably one of the most startling of the seven letters that he writes to me. You know, we can read it again in verse 20 where he says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Now, a slight excursus. Um, some of us, when we hear that, might think immediately the problem was, well, that's where they went wrong. They let a woman up to the microphone. And if they hadn't done that, everything would have gone all right in Thyatira. Um, I want to tell you that's not what's going on in this passage. This is not a passage we should go to for our debates about complementarianism versus egalitarianism. Um, while we um, don't have prophetesses today, at the time, godly prophetesses in the church weren't that uncommon. We see it in Luke chapter 2, verses 36. There's a lady named Anna called the prophetess who praises God for Christ's coming. We learn about Philip the Evangelist's daughters in Acts 21. Um, Paul even has a command to wives who pray or prophesy in 1 Corinthians 11. And so whatever is going on there with that, we can't simply take the way that we've settled things, interpreted things, apply it, and say that would have solved the issue. It's not that simple or that easy. So there's some semblance where it might not have been that surprising to the church of Thyatira or to any of the churches in that day for there to be someone claiming to be a prophetess and to perhaps give them an opportunity to speak. The issue at the heart of it is what she was teaching, what she was saying to this church in Thyatira. Because he goes on, and Christ says, and Jezebel is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to, to eat food sacrificed to idols. 
And he says he gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So the situation we're discussing is that maybe we're having a guest speaker or something. Like, imagine if it was happening here today in Christ Church, that somehow our elders and our pastors decided to let someone come up to this pulpit and talk to you on a Sunday morning and encourage you to engage in sexual immorality and idolatry. I think pretty much all of us would be rather perturbed. Um, And yet Christ tells us the pastor of Thyatira tolerated it. And what he's tolerating is someone leading people off into death. Like we're told from Paul in Romans 6 that the wages of sin are death. And he ends it with the gift of God is eternal life. When he goes to Romans 8, he, he expounds at great lengths about how the Holy Spirit sets us free from the sin And yes, I realize we're not in Romans today. Um, But all of Scripture interprets Scripture. That the Holy Spirit makes it to where we are free to live God in holy lives before our good and gracious God. And yet someone comes in and begins teaching the exact opposite. Teaching us to do the very things that lead us to our own destruction. And on top of just the, the pastor tolerating that there was... Uh, this person coming into the church and teaching these things, we also know that a large number of the congregation, or at least enough for it to be significant for Christ to, to point it out, said, hmm, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Running off to sexual immorality and idol worship sounds like a great plan. Let's do that. And it's Christ, in his patience, still takes the time to warn this person that I don't think we ourselves would tolerate. I think we would probably have a fit. All of us would have wonderful emails for Jonathan on Monday morning for him to read if this occurred. But Christ, even as this is going on in his church, showed patience in the hope that this person would repent of their sins, would stop teaching what they were teaching, We know these are divine because only God gives mercy to sinners like this, gives people time to repent. And yet, because she isn't, Christ makes good on his promise that he has always made, that the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. We are told that Christ is a shepherd who will walk through us in the valley of the shadow of death, and we will fear no evil because his rod and his staff will comfort us. And so him stepping into the situation, he tells the pastor of Thyatira and the church of Thyatira that while this is ongoing, that behold, I will throw her into a sickbed. Christ is going to personally deal with the situation. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And he continues, and I will strike her children dead And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I think Christ is mad. I think Christ in this passage reminds us very much of God in the Old Testament dealing with his people, specifically when there actually was a woman named Jezebel. She was a queen, King Ahab's wife, who was attacking Elijah and Elijah, who was encouraging God's people to go off into the very activities that this person in Thyatira is teaching people to do. 
And when Queen Jezebel did that, and her husband did that, God personally dealt with them and sent judgment upon them. In the same way, we see Christ stepping forward into the first century many, many years later, seeing a person who imbues that same type of spirit, that same type of idea, and doing the same harm to his church. And he says, no, I will take them out. And any of those who follow after her, who do not repent of her works, who do not repent of her teachings, I will do the same too. And then he has this very startling line that I just have to address. He says, and I will strike her children dead. Um, I want to be clear, Christ is not saying he's going to commit infanticide. It's a very common thing throughout all of Scripture that for the person you follow as your teacher, your mentor, your pastor, you become called their children. Um, Christ does this when he's talking with the Pharisees and says that they are the children of their father, the devil, who's a murderer. Um, John, in his second letter, um, introduces it by saying, I greet you, the, uh, it's like holy lady electa and your children, referring to the church, and thus all the people being in the church as being the children. So he's saying all of those who are following, at, like openly following Jezebel, I will personally bring judgment against. <clears throat> and so surprisingly as that might sound, judgment and fire and casting people into sick beds probably aren't things we normally want to think of as comfort or encouragement. But what it tells us is that Christ will not tolerate false teaching in his church. He will not tolerate those who harm his flock by leading them off into sin. Christ is involved personally and actively when those things are occurring in his church. And he tells us even more that he's doing these things so that all the churches will know that he is the one who searches mind and heart and will give to each of you according to your works. He's telling us that anything that the Christians in Thyatira might be doing in secret and following after Jezebel, that he knows about it and that he will personally judge it, whether onto destruction or onto righteousness. And so while the fact that God will act in that way is an encouragement. It's also a warning that whatever sins that we are doing in secret, that God will bring what is done in darkness into light and that he will judge us according to our works. And he does the same yesterday that he does today and he will be the same tomorrow. As we look at passages like this, we, we need to remember that while they were not written to us, I don't think any of us are 2,000 years old in this room um, at all. So while this letter was written to a different congregation, a different people that were living, breathing at that time, it was still written for us. And so it leads me to the question of, is Jezebel still with us in some sense? And again, as I look across this American evangelical Christian church that makes me want to jump into a time machine, I have to say that just as the church was a mess, the church still is a mess. We tolerate false teachers, um, and it's regardless of whether, um, how we might place them on a spectrum. You know, we we've have a church as a whole, remember, we're, when we get done with this sermon, we're going to say the Apostles' Creed, and there's that line about, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. The church is broader than just our congregation on this Sunday, when I'm talking about church at the moment. But the church is rife with sexual scandal and abuse. 
It is rife with those who use their power to strengthen their own position and abuse those underneath them. You know, when I, I brought this sermon idea to, to Jonathan, the pastoral staff, I, I said that if I, I, I could take it, the entire sermon and just do a litany of prominent men in ministry who we've read their books, we've been to their conferences, um, just over the last 50 years that I could do a litany that would take the entire service. And Jonathan began laughing at me and say, what do you mean the last five decades? We're talking, we can do that in the last five months. You know, but as we look at those events, we see men who may have came up, they, they, they say what they're supposed to say, but what they were doing in secret was the exact opposite of their confession. And yet, even as that occurred, we see that Christ is still active in the inner workings of his church because we wouldn't have known about any of these things had they not been brought to light. And yet, often when they're brought to light, the judgment that God promises for someone like Jezebel shows up in the lives of those men and in their ministries. You know, sometimes it's the public scrutiny of something like uh, the Boston Globe wrote an article in well, they released it in 2002 about um, the abuse of children by priests in Boston and how they were just moving the priests around rather than dealing with the issue. And that didn't go away. Like, it, it caused a lot of publicity. Uh, the church lost a lot of money. Um, but then over a decade later, in the past, like, five years, those same type of articles showed up and more research was done. And it's like, look, it's going on in places like Seattle and Pennsylvania and other countries, and it's just a total mess. And yet God in bringing it to light was bringing it to judgment. And I remember having a conversation with a friend when that happened, of him just like shoving it away as something we as Christians, specifically Protestant, Reformed Christians, don't have to deal with because, well, Catholic priests are celibate, so that explains the whole issue. And while I'm not a prophet, or the son of a prophet, as I told him, I said, just give it a little bit of time. And sure enough, those same type of things have shown their head in all of conservative Christianity across America. And it is Christ bringing it to light, and it is Christ judging them. I mean, if you want to read more about it, go check out Rachel Dan Hollander on Twitter. She talks about it a lot. Um, it's a very public thing of men who we thought were conservative, good, faithful teachers turning out to be a lot more like Jezebel than we might desire or expect. And a consequence of that is there's been many of my friends. I, I have a feeling you have family members or friends who might have started using terms like Exvangelical, or maybe going through a process of deconstruction. And often as I've talked with them, you know, I, I was surprised to find out that, like, wait, these aren't people who read a, a Richard Dawkins book that was poorly written and now say they don't believe in God. These are people who were born and raised in the church and in many ways did everything they were supposed to do. And they are deeply wounded by how the church has treated them. And so they say... I love your Jesus. I'm not so sure about his church. I love your Christ who died for my sins, and they will still say they're Christians, they will say they still believe in Jesus, but they're really not sure about our churches. 
And if I had the chance to speak to them directly, the encouragement that I would give them is found in the rest of this passage in 24 through 29 where Christ clearly lays out that he will defeat all of his enemies. He makes reference, um, it's verse 27, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself received authority from my Father. Christ is once again in his ministry referring back to Psalm 2 where the nations rage and the kingdoms plot in vain. And David tells him, like, what are you doing? God laughs at you in derision as you stand against him. And his prince, Jesus, the very son of God, will break them like clay pots with an iron rod. Christ will always be there to protect his church from the wolves, from the false prophets. And he's also tried to comfort us long ago before we even get to this point in redemptive history of Thyatira by telling us, hey, there's weeds, sow them with the wheat, and at the end of time, I will separate them and my servants will burn the weeds and I will preserve the wheat. He tells us uh, his Olivet Discourse, um, it's Matthew 24, where the, the apostles are like, hey, when are, is your kingdom being established? And Christ goes on and talks about false teachers coming into the church. And earlier in his ministry, Matthew 5, what he mostly focuses on with false teachers isn't even necessarily what they say, but the fruit of their ministry being rotten. Like, are you really going to go and eat fruit that's covered in thistles, that's spoiled, that, that, that's small, but rather, and then Christ encourages us to have the fruit of the Holy Spirit in contrast. But that's his judgment upon it. And so while telling us this would happen, he promises that he will defeat all of his enemies, that he will rule with them, rule over them. In his promise to us, the thing he tells us in response to this is only hold fast. That might be the hardest part. He tells us that he lays no other burden on us, and we might feel an urge that we have to solve all these problems in the churches. And in some degree, we will just in the natural living out of our lives but ultimately it is Christ that will protect you, who will show grace to you, who will save you from these terrible things that are going on around us. And so while the church will look like a mess, is a mess, Christ has promised that he will be the one who preserves his church. In conclusion, there's, uh, this might be why I like time machines. I really like history. There's this old pastor Bishop, actually, John Christostom from Constantinople. It's Istanbul today. And he was known as the best preacher of his time, perhaps all time. They called him the man with the golden mouth. And with that golden mouth, um, he ticked off enough people that were in charge that they removed him from being a pastor in Constantinople. So he gets sent out of the city, and one of his dear friends, um, Olympias, is just heartbroken that the church is such a mess. And that's one absolutely valid response to all the things that are going on in the news and everything else. But John Christosom, as a pastor, wants to comfort her. And so he tells this almost epic, um, in the sense of like the Iliad, the Odyssey type poem, of the description of the church being a ship in the Mediterranean and 
All of the sailors are terrified. There's waves beating on the ship almost to break it apart. And it's being attacked by sea monsters. And he just goes. like It's like several pages. Um, but at the end of it, he says this. Nevertheless, even when I look at these calamities, I do not abandon the hope of better things, considering as I do who this pilot is in all this. Not one who gets the better of the storm by his art, but calms the raging waters by his rod. Our dear brother from way back when is saying Christ is not simply a good sea captain who knows how to get us through the Bering Strait. He is the one who controls the seas themselves. In the same way, he is sovereign over the world and he is sovereign over his church. And in everything that takes place, he is in control. So my dear brothers and sisters, when the church is a mess, remember your Savior, Jesus Christ, who will not let the gates of hell prevail against this church. And remember your Father, who will not let any of his precious children slip from his caring hand. And be comforted by the Holy Spirit, who indwells and prays on your behalf. Let us pray. Father, you are our great protector and our preserver. You are the one who knows everything that has and will and is coming to pass. And so we trust yourself to your care. And to you, Jesus Christ, our good shepherd, who will lead us beside still waters. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen.